Chris Mays has jumped into her role as state attorney general. She's not been shy about taking on big issues, from critiquing the state's water policy to casting a skeptical eye on Arizona's new universal voucher program. The first Democrat to hold the seat in more than a decade, Mays earlier this year confirmed her office is investigating potential fraud from the 2020 presidential election, where Arizona played a key role in tipping the result to Joe Biden. Welcome to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy for the Republic. And I'm Stacey Barchinger, sitting in for Ron Hansen. I also cover state politics for the Republic in specifically the governor's and attorney general's offices. Today, the attorney general sat down with us to talk about that probe of the 2020 election, how she's prioritizing a variety of pressing issues, and her office's fight against the fentanyl epidemic in Arizona. General Mays, thanks for joining us on The Gaggle. It's great to be here. We're going to jump right in. The biggest thing on the legal landscape all across the U.S. are the four indictments that are against former President Donald Trump. There are witnesses and events that have happened here in Arizona that figure prominently in two of those cases, including our fake electors, which begs the question, what's the status of the criminal probe that your office is undertaking? So, Mary Jo, as you know, we are investigating the fake electors, and I've said uh, in the past, you know, I can't say much beyond that. I think it's um, something, obviously, that we're taking very seriously. It's a very solemn situation. It's a very important investigation, and I think that in the interest of justice, obviously, um, that's about all we're going to say about it until the investigation is done. So Can I know that's not probably what you wanted to hear. I get it. Uh, as a former reporter, I understand that's the question that, that you need to ask. But the other thing I would say with regard to, I know people are anxious to get more information but with regard to Arizona and our investigation, the attorney general of Michigan has been in place for a number of years. The district attorney in Georgia who is handling that case has been in place for a number of years. Her investigation looks like it's been going on for at least two years. So they've, they've got a little bit of a head start on Arizona. So I would just sort of leave it at that. I should clarify, does your investigation... Is it limited to the fake electors, or are you looking at other matters beyond that? I'm not going to comment on that. I wonder if you would say, you know, you mentioned the cases in Michigan and Georgia. The prosecutors there have had more time in office. I wonder if you can say anything about any key differences between Arizona law and law in those other states that might eventually shape a prosecution that we could see. I don't really want to talk too much about that. Obviously, there are some differences, and there could be differences in approaches to these cases. Almost certainly there will be. But beyond that, I don't think I'm going to talk about the investigation. Clearly, Arizona's investigation, as you mentioned, it's on a different timetable because you've only been in office for, what now, eight and a half months. Can you give our listeners a sense of what is realistic for making any kind of decisions on whether to charge on a matter such as this? I don't think that we want to put 
parameters around the investigation. I'm certainly not going to put a timetable around it. What I'll say is we want to do a thorough job. We want to do it. We are going to do a professional job. I will say one of the things, as you know, having covered my campaign, is that my predecessor did engage in sort of midstream commentary about investigations including his investigation into uh, the 2020 election, which was an investigation that that never should have happened. And it got him into a lot of trouble. So we're not going to do that kind of thing. This is a professional prosecutor's office with professional investigators, with attorneys who I'm very proud of. These are professionals. They need to take the time that they, they need to take to investigate this case and then potentially to prosecute the case if that's where we go. So I'm not putting any timetables on it. I don't think it would be appropriate to do that. You mentioned your predecessor. I assume you were referring to his investigation into his comments about the audit that the state Senate conducted? That's right. Yeah. One last question, and then we'll inch along. Um, but have you have your conversations with special counsel Jack Smith or his staff influenced how you view an Arizona case? All I'll say about that is we've reached out to other prosecutors and we've had conversations, but I'm not going to talk with any specificity about those conversations. Let's look a little bit more broadly. You know, deep skepticism about election results has such a strong place in Arizona. The Republican you defeated last year continues to claim he won. He's not alone. Carrie Lake continues to claim without evidence that fraud is why she is not in the governor's office. Why do you think election denialism has such a foothold in Arizona? You know, that's a great question, and it's very concerning question. It's very troubling to me, especially as a former Republican. As you know, I was a Republican up until 2019, made the decision uh, in my life in 2018 to switch parties. And I don't know, I can't answer that question entirely, but it's really problematic from the standpoint of our being able to move forward as a state. It's costing our state this denialism and the, the continued lawsuits by people like Carrie Lake and Abe Hamada is costing the state enormous amounts of money. It's costing us in so many other intangible ways as well in, in terms of the trust in our government, in our politics, in our election system. All of that mistrust is misplaced, you know, and it's being ginned up by these people who have no respect for our democracy who have no respect for our Constitution and for everything that so many people died for. You know, these are people who are trying to undermine American democracy. And it's so very unfair. So I think, and I said this during the campaign, I hope the Republican Party can find its footing again. I genuinely hope that, even though I'm a Democrat. We have to have a healthy, functioning second party in this country to be able to move forward. It's very troubling, and I hope that they can um, pull back from the brink. But they've got to do that. And if they don't, at minimum, they're going to continue to lose elections. But it could be even much worse than that. Looking forward to 2024, you know, in this landscape you're talking about, about distrust, 
we expect that probably will continue. What do you think the role is of the attorney general in securing elections, combating misinformation, building trust? Well, in terms of combating misinformation, like Adrian Fontes, like the governor, I think you just we just have to keep talking about what a fantastic job our elections officials do and talking about how it works, educating folks about how our election systems work and getting the word out there. We have to continuously combat the misinformation. In terms of my job as attorney general, I feel as though my number one job is to protect our elections officials from threats of violence or death threats. And unfortunately, far too many elections officials have now resigned across our counties as a result of death threats or uh, threats of violence. And so I, you know, I've been clear and I'll say it again today, we will prosecute anyone who is found to have engaged in a death threat or a threat of violence against an election official, period. We've already done it. And uh, I know the federal government is doing that as well. So we are in communication with the U.S. Attorney's Office on these issues, and we will prosecute. So the message is don't do it. Don't do it. Because if you do, we're going to put you in jail for it. And we can't have a functioning democracy if public servants, the public servants who go to work every day are county recorders, are county elections directors, the people who do the the nitty-gritty, the detail-oriented work of running elections don't want to do that anymore. And we saw Yavapai County officials resign. We've seen officials in, I think the number is now two-thirds of the counties. Say, pick a county. Pick a county, and you've seen a key person leave. And we, I need to be there for them, and we will be there, and I'm going to continue to have conversations, including with county sheriffs, who I'm in close communication with a lot. I just had two meetings this morning with sheriffs from all over uh, the state, not, not in this particular issue. But I am developing, and I have worked really, really hard to develop those relationships with local law enforcement so that we can be ready for 2024 to respond to anything. Mm-hmm. What's the role of the Election Integrity Unit? Obviously, that's shifted some under your tenure. Yeah, I mean, it has, and it, it sort of got defunded by the legislature, um, but uh, it's still there. I mean, we're still doing that work. We're doing what they ought to have been doing from the beginning. It really was not about protecting elections. It was about undermining our elections and undermining trust in our elections. When you look at the investigation that they were doing under Brnovich, 10,000 man hours, and they found nothing wrong. In fact, the opposite of that with the 2020 election. So we are doing that work. We are doing work within our Solicitor General's office and elsewhere throughout the office in our criminal division to protect elections officials. It's really about standing up for voting rights. It's about enforcing open meeting laws. And it's about protecting our elections officials against those threats that I was talking about. Open meeting law is an important issue. We have reinvigorated and essentially reformulated the unit within the AG's office that used to be known as OMLET, the open meeting law team. 
Yeah, maybe people didn't know that existed, but food you know, acronyms uh, always Ma- welcome. Mary Jo, I don't know if you remember that from the be- oh, yeah. from the old days, but I remember Goddard it from days. the Goddard days. Correct. We have reinvigorated that unit, and that's the unit that we are utilizing to, for instance, deal with the Tom Crosby situation down in Cochise County and the the Cochise County open meeting law violations. And we will apply that across the board, evenly across the board. I mean, you know, government needs to be on notice that if they try to do things behind closed doors in violation of the law, we will go after it. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that happening. We've got a lot of complaints that I think were not being addressed under my predecessor, and we have formulated the team again to really enforce open meeting law and to to bring sunshine and light and transparency to government because I think that's how you get fraud and abuse and corruption is when people can't see what's going on. And it's one of the reasons I'm so concerned about the journalism industry. Fewer reporters means, and I'm not sucking up here, you know, more opportunity for corruption. That worries me. Well, we do love to hear that you like to take hard questions, so um, we'll follow up with you on that. But zooming out from elections for a little bit, it seems as if in your first eight, eight and a half months in office, you've weighed in on some of the most pressing issues facing this state. Defending abortion rights, taking on the Department of Water Resources and sweetheart land deals, aligning yourself with public schools, probing private school vouchers, all while exploring actions to take regarding social media influence and a merger between Albertsons and Kroger. How do you prioritize? Um, I work a lot, Stacy. <laughs> I like this work. You know, but that's a good question because, you know, the Attorney General's office is, is a sweeping office that really covers every area of, of our lives here in Arizona, um, whether it's, to your point, the environment, protecting consumers in, in proposed merger cases, protecting our water supplies, making sure that we build our education system and we don't have a Department of Education and a superintendent who's doing the wrong thing on dual language programs, for, for instance. It's a sweeping office. What I prioritize and what I said to the people of Arizona I would do if they elected me is protecting Arizonans, the most vulnerable Arizonans, and really focusing on consumer issues. That, I think, is what the job is all about. And and I think that's what I've done on all of those fronts. And restoring the office to what I think is a more traditional attorney general's office, traditional in the sense that it's not focused on scoring political points. And I understand people are going to say, oh, but Chris Mays, you know, you've done things that are political. You can read almost anything through a political lens. I understand that. But if you were to ask me, what AG in the past do you consider yourself most like? I hope at the end of this, people say I was most like Grant Woods. In fact, Marlene Galan Woods called me up a few months into my tenure and asked me if I would like her to get Grant's desk out of storage and if I'd like to have it. And I said, absolutely. And so I work off of Grant's desk and I work off of the premise that he did this job better than 
anybody ever has. Do you have the baseball bat that he used to keep in his office and <laughs> swing around? No, I no baseball bats and no nunchucks either, Mary Jo. <laughs> We're not not doing nunchucks, not doing that. But but not that those two are the same things. But um, I love this job and I love being able to go to work every day with one thing on my mind, and that's protecting Arizonans. As we've already mentioned, you um, have talked a lot already this year about abortion access in Arizona. And in December, the Supreme Court's going to hear arguments on Arizona's two conflicting laws on abortion access. Whatever happens there could bring finality to a policy area that's been in flux since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. How could the outcome of that case affect the ongoing ballot initiative that is likely to hit people's ballots in 2024? Well, Obviously, and I'll be there that day. I plan to attend in person. Um, you know, look, I mean, obviously, I hope the Supreme Court decides in favor of you know, not reimposing the 1864 territorial ban on abortion on Arizonans. I think most Arizonans would obviously be outraged by that result. And most Arizonans believe that we should have access to reproductive services, that this is not a place for government intervention, that our decisions on health care should be made by us, our families, doctors. And as you know, we have right now in place the 15-week ban, which, by the way, is not perfect. It has no exceptions for rape or incest, but it does retain some access to abortion. Your question, what would happen if the Supreme Court upheld an 1864 territorial ban that was passed when women couldn't vote, Arizona wasn't a state, and the Civil War wasn't over? Um, I think that uh, probably improves the chances of the ballot initiative. Um, I think, you know, it probably supercharges it and then almost ensures that it'll pass. I think it's going to pass anyway, but it certainly heightens the stakes for the ballot initiative. Do you see yourself using your, your own political profile to support the ballot initiative? Yeah, I do. I, I would anticipate doing that. Obviously, we'll have to think through exactly how involved I am. As you noted, I'm really busy with a lot of other things, but I certainly will, will be supportive of it. Yeah. Um, one of the other things you have going on is a listening session on social media and how it influences kids. You're on the record calling on Congress to study artificial intelligence and how it can impact people and children specifically. Can you tell us just what your interest is in this area and what, if anything, you can or plan to do about it? We know that uh, Facebook and TikTok and YouTube and other social media platforms are having a negative impact on the health of our kids. There's a growing body of evidence that it is increasing body dysmorphia among especially girls, but also boys. It is leading to elevated rates of suicide and attempted suicide among our kids. There's evidence that social media companies knew that the algorithms that they use to draw kids in, young kids, are harmful and are leading to these results. There's also evidence that the social media companies were deliberately and are deliberately trying to attract kids at a young age because they know, just like with tobacco, that if you hook somebody early, you keep them for life. 
right? So we're investigating the social media platforms. And now I'm going to go out and talk to Arizonans about that and see what they have to say. I would tell you there are a bipartisan group of AGs across the country that are doing the same things. There's at least one or two that have already filed a lawsuit against a couple of social media companies. And so I would just say watch this space and watch it really closely. All right. So related, last week an appeals court in Louisiana further defined limits on what the government can do when it comes to reporting false information to social media companies with the ultimate goal of taking it off of the Internet. You and other attorney generals around the country took the Biden administration side in that case, filed a brief in support. But why should the government have this power over social media companies versus just putting out correct information? Is there an argument that you fight disinformation with information? I guess there's an argument. Uh, Do I think that's the winning argument? No. I think that ultimately it's less about content and more about algorithms. And I think that's important, especially when we're talking about, you know, whether we can win a case in court. So when you have companies that are focused on and know that they're doing something that is harmful and addictive, and they have algorithms that are designed to be addictive, and the companies knew what they were doing, then that's fair game. And that's something that AGs and school districts and other entities can go after. Your office has received complaints, as you mentioned, about potential fraud in the state's universal voucher program, also known as the empowerment scholarship accounts. Can you characterize for us the types of complaints that your office has received? Like, for example, do they focus more on the providers or on parents? And are there ongoing investigations? There are ongoing investigations. Definitely would say more focused on the potentially fraudulent providers that are misrepresenting themselves to parents. So look, I mean, (laughs) whenever you have an enormous pot of unregulated money with very little oversight, you are almost certain to see scam artists attracted to it. And those of us who are old enough to remember alt fuels, we remember that, right? We remember what happened. It would be folly to not believe that a program that has grown to a billion dollars in a few short years and is now open to anyone isn't going to attract scammers and fraudsters and people who are going to try to abuse it. And so I came out and said, look, I don't like the fact that we have a billion dollar voucher program. I think it's insane. I think it is not something our state can afford. Obviously, we now know we have a more than $300 million deficit, probably at least in part because of that universal voucher program. But if it's going to be there, then it's my job as attorney general to police it and to be a watchdog and to be a deterrent to fraud. So my job is to protect both parents and the system against fraud and corruption. And that's what I'm trying to do. So I'd say it is the complaints that we've got. We have had some and we even recently resolved one where we got money that was restored to a parent who believed they were defrauded by a provider. Do you think the program itself is legally sound? 
Um, that's a good question. Do I think the program itself is legally sound? I would say I don't think that we've done a thorough analysis of that yet. I think it's certainly not sound from a policy standpoint at a bare minimum. It is mind-boggling when you think about the scope of this program and when you think about how terribly underfunded our education system is in the state of Arizona. School Superintendent Tom Horn is suing the state over dual language instruction in the schools. You mentioned that earlier. But you're the state's attorney general, not Tom Horn. Is Horn himself a former AG? Is, is he crowding your lane? On the dual language programs? Uh, well, and more. First of all, he's suing me, so that's a problem. I was his lawyer. That's most unfortunate. I provided uh, what I felt like was good legal advice uh, on the dual language program. We issued an AG's opinion, as you know, that said that uh, Tom Horn didn't have the authority to decide whether the state's dual language programs were lawful, that only the State Board of Education has that authority. And I guess he didn't like that. So instead of going back to the State Board of Education or going back to the legislature to try to change the law, if he didn't like it, he ought to go back to the legislature to try to change the law, which, by the way, was those amendments were passed in 2019 pretty much overwhelmingly. So he decided instead to sue me, to sue the Creighton School District, and to sue the governor. You know, obviously, we will vigorously defend ourselves against that. But is Tom Horn playing AG? I don't know. But if he is, he's not doing it very well. Last month, we learned that the Department of Child Safety had found 95,000 documents related to child welfare cases that never got into, as far as people can tell, into a file and reviewed by judges. Some of those included adoptions, which have already been completed. So your office represents DCS, which is now reviewing the documents. But how can parents who are on the other side of a case brought by DCS have confidence that they're going to see everything related to their case when the review is being done by DCS's attorneys? Should there be a neutral party doing this? That's a fair question, and we have discussed that issue. And what I would say is I hope that parents take some solace in knowing that once we found out about this, once I learned about it and the governor learned about it, we immediately moved to make it transparent. Now, let's, let's remember who this happened under. It was Governor Ducey's administration that allowed this to happen and allowed it to go on for as long as it did. And as soon as our lawyers found out about it, they called me and we, we took action. I will say, as we go through the adoption cases, we have not yet found a closed adoption case that needed to be reopened as a result of the documents. It's a painstaking process, and our attorneys who were, I will tell you, devastated and appalled when they found out about this are going through the process of getting those documents into the system, into the right files, we immediately reached out to juvenile court judges. We reached out to the Supreme Court. We reached out to actually all superior court judges and let them know that this was happening. And so 
I feel like we have a good process right now for getting those documents disclosed. Every document? I mean, is there any uh, winnowing of them as you're reviewing them? Uh, I think it's pretty much every document. Now, it's going to take a little bit of time to get through, as you said, 90,000 documents. And my understanding that there is some, there is some winnowing in the sense that it's some duplication and that was discovered. And so, you know, there's still a lot of documents and it still is unacceptable. It's not acceptable on any level. And so we just have to, DCS is gonna have to learn from this. I will tell you, Mary Jo, if our lawyers had known this was going on, they never would have allowed it to happen. And we will bird dog this until it is done and until all of these documents are disclosed. And including working with DCS, I think this is important. We need to understand whether its document management system, because that's at DCS, is up to date enough to be able to handle this going forward. So General May's a big part of what you wanted to do in office is go after fentanyl. The synthetic opioid that I think I just read this week contributes to the over 100,000 overdose deaths that we have in this country each year. Can you just bring us up to speed on what your office is doing on that front to combat the fentanyl crisis and what more we might be able to expect to see? This was something that coming into office I knew was a huge problem. Once I got to the Attorney General's office, it became very clear to me that this is an enormous crisis for our state. The DEA estimates that more than half of all the fentanyl seized in the United States last year was seized in Arizona. That's just the fentanyl that we seized, that the DEA seized. That's not the fentanyl that's getting through, right? And so I put a huge focus on this, and I am trying to bring additional resources to what is already an accomplished drug unit inside the AG's office. We handle a lot of the really big drug cases, and we are fighting every day against the drug cartels. It is a huge problem. About a month ago, I went to the White House with about six other AGs and spoke directly to the vice president. And I told the vice president, this is a border problem. You cannot solve the fentanyl problem without using the B word, border. And I was pretty blunt in my discussion with the vice president. And there's a lot of frustration by other AGs about the fact that it's, you know, we are the fentanyl funnel for the country. That's just the, the fact of it. And it is horrifying. Part of the problem is fentanyl is really cheap. It is a cheap drug on the streets. And so it's getting across the border, largely but not exclusively through the ports of entry. One of the things I asked the, the vice president of the White House to do is get us more non-intrusive technology at the ports of entry. And I also said to the vice president, if there's any technology that the military or our intelligence agencies has even if it's classified, put it there. We need it. And I think she heard me. She's a former AG, the former AG of California, and she understands that. We also have drone incursions happening across our border by the cartels. We need to be able to disable those drones. We need to bring them down through whatever means necessary. 
And then the other thing I think we need to do is we need to restore RICO. Uh, we need to be able to do asset uh, seizures. Uh, there was a law passed a few years ago that limited the ability of, of the AG's office, but also county attorneys and sheriffs to do seizures of cash. We need to be able to do that as well. And I'm also working very hard and have been working hard to require, once again, money service businesses, MSBs, like Western Union, to comply with subpoenas about the money that's being transferred down to Mexico. They were not responding to our subpoenas, and um, we believe we're in a better place right now on that front. They need to be providing information to the state through a program called TRAC, and uh, I intend to make sure that they are. We have to have every tool at our disposal and just a couple of days ago, I wrote an email to all of my division chiefs saying that we are going to launch an internal cross-division unit to attack this problem with every tool at our disposal, whether it's a civil tool or a criminal tool or an investigatory tool. Just for clarity's sake, backing up to the drone incursions is there a role that the AG or the state plays in stopping those, or that's something you'd like to see the federal government do? I don't know yet. I'm going to explore that. Obviously, it's a federal role, right? You okay. know, but I don't know yet. I'm not willing to say that it's not something that we can't explore further. Well, I want to know so much about that. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> so do I. Look, we have to do everything we can to stop this stuff from coming across the border. It's killing our kids. It's killing our families. It is contributing to our homelessness crisis. It is a huge problem. Families in Arizona deserve our best efforts. And so I've, I have really become convinced of this and convinced that this is probably one of the things that I need to put a lot of my personal attention on as AG. Well... That's about it for this week, although there are so many more things that we could talk about. So we hope you'll come back. I will. <laughs> for future episodes of The Gaggle. But thanks so much for giving us your time today. Yeah, it's good to see you guys. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about today's episode or topics you'd like us to cover on the show? If you do, send us a message at 602-444-0804 or send a voice memo to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's all one word, all spelled out. This episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto. Script writing and research by myself, Stacey Barchanger, and Amanda Luberto. News direction from Kathy Tulamello. Music comes from Universal Production Music. Never miss an episode of The Gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen. If you learned something new today, be sure to share this episode with a friend. You can also leave us a review and rate us five stars. You can follow The Gaggle on social media at AZC Podcasts, and I'm at S. Barchinger. That's S-B-A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. And I'm at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. The Gaggle is an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com production. Thanks again for listening. 
and we'll see you next week.